0: Oh, thank you all for coming. Um, in philosophy or in debate, there's a uh, term which is straw man argument, which you probably know. Straw man argument simply means that one does not refute the strongest version of the opponent's argument. So that one gives a weaker version of what the other person is actually saying and then defeats that weaker version so it's, in other words it's like you didn't defeat a real man it was just a straw man so th- so that's the the term straw man argument so i think um trying to be objective here and i think uh, on philosophical, philosophical grounds i would contend that practically all the arguments against God are something like straw man arguments. And uh, of course, there may be good arguments against bad versions or bad concepts of God. And so, uh, but I don't think there, I mean, in other words, if someone puts forward an idea of God, which is just not a, a well thought out, concept of God, there may be good arguments against that. And I'll give one example of what I mean by that. Um, Somehow, uh, in the Judeo-Christian tradition, uh, it came to be, Judeo-Christian, Islamic, I should say, it came to be accepted that God created the world including souls, uh, to use the common Latin ex nihilo, which means from nothing so that our present life is our first life because we didn't exist before. So God created us from nothing. Uh, there's a historical problem with this idea and there's a philosophical problem. Um, the historical problem is that according to scholars at uh, who are specialists in Old Testament studies, uh, the Old Testament, which handles the creation narrative in all these different traditions, the Old Testament doesn't really say explicitly that God created the world from nothing. And so somehow the idea that God did create the world from nothing is uh, was just someone's idea that caught on. So, um, what was his name? The, the, the guru of Zeno? Parmenides. Uh, any Parmenides fans here?
1: No.
0: <laughs> anyway, Parmenides was a pre Socratic Greek philosopher. Socrates was so important that the philosophers that came before him are called pre Socratics. So there was one philosopher who was very influential, in fact, he influenced Plato a lot, called Parmenides. And he argued basically that uh, if we say something came from nothing, it's actually just a confused way of speaking. Because, I'll try to lay this out for you, but then I, I wanna to get to the back to the God thing. Um, he said that the word nothing is a real word just like something if you compare these two words nothing and something they're both equally words however the difference is that something refers to a real thing whereas nothing doesn't actually refer to anything there's no object you can call here's nothing there's no such in other words there's no existing thing which is nothing In fact, nothing means exactly that, that it's not referring to anything. So therefore, to say something comes from nothing or when something dies or perishes or dissolves, it merges into nothing. uh, He said it's actually a linguistic mistake. It's just mistaking the fact that nothing is a positive word in the sense positive in the sense it really exists, but actually doesn't refer to anything. So to say something comes from nothing is not really to say anything at all. But apart from that, probably uh, apart from the historical mistake of saying we're created from nothing or the philosophical problems, of course, you could say an omnipotent God could just create something that didn't exist before. But then there is a probably perhaps the most serious problem is the ethical problem. There's, I think, an ethical problem in saying that God created us from nothing, uh, which simply cannot be overcome and which therefore provides atheists with their most powerful argument against God. The ethical problem is that if this is our first life and if we are created by a God who is, as one philosopher said, a triple O God, omnipotent, omniscient, and omnibenevolent, in other words, all good, all knowing, and all strong, all powerful, um, then, you know, this thing you've heard a million times, why are some people suffering? Why are some people born in absolutely horrendous conditions and some people are born, uh, in, in great conditions? Why are some apparently innocent people suffering and some of, you know, apparently very guilty people, uh, people that really do bad things and then die happily in their sleep and leave billions of dollars, to their children. So if, if, um, If we are trying to make moral sense of the universe or just the planet earth, if we are, if we are trying to find (coughs) on earth, a moral law, which I mean, beyond human laws, that there's some type of cosmic or divine moral law, which is being enforced so that people really get what they deserve. And if we also believe that this, everyone is born for the first time, this is our first life, then it's simply impossible to detect, it's impossible to demonstrate that in fact, there is a divine moral law operating in the universe. Or as sometimes it said, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? Or why do good things happen to bad people? So this in philosophy is called, uh, technical term as theodicy, from the Greek word theos, which means God, from Sanskrit Deva, and uh, TK, uh, in, um, Greek means justice. So is there justice in God? So again, if you believe that this is our first life, we did not have previous lives and, uh, then there's no way in the world you can explain why there's so much injustice, actually huge amounts of injustice on God's watch, so to speak. And so, this is probably the main argument of atheists against, uh, against God. Now, this argument surfaces in different places in the world, including India, but the argument really has traction. It really is a good argument, only when speaking about religions that came from the Middle East. Uh, which are, of course, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, for the simple reason that those re- those religions have always taught, or at least have taught for a very long time, that this is our first life. Now, one interesting fact is that all the main major world religions, and by major here, I don't mean they're the best ideas anyone ever had necessarily, but they've had major historical influence. The religions that have had the most, by far, the most powerful influence on human history. Uh, they only come from two places in the world. If You may think that, well, religions have popped up everywhere, and they have, but religions that really became important historically, whether they were good or bad, really only come from two parts of the world. They come from um, the Middle East, and they come from India. So I've already mentioned the three religions that come from uh, the Middle East and from India. You have, of course, uh, Hinduism and Buddhism, two of the main world religions, and other things like Jainism, which were powerful uh, a few thousand years ago, but since have become very small in numbers. So, um, on the Eastern side, because Buddhism also, of course, came from India, um, on the Eastern side, the, the religions that came from South Asia, or what we now call India, and Pakistan and Nepal, um, they understood the principle of reincarnation. The fact that we, as living beings, as conscious beings, are not our bodies. In fact, uh, if you just think about it a little bit, it becomes obvious that it is logically impossible for us to be our bodies. And I'll explain what I mean by that. I, I sort of phrased it in a very provocative way so uh, no one would start texting while I'm speaking. So we have, we have two obvious facts. One fact is that um, our body, well, that we have reincarnated several times in this life some of us more than others. If you divide your age by seven, roughly, that's how many times you've already reincarnated. So um, so the question really is not, is there reincarnation? Because you have already experienced it if you are more than seven years old. The real question is, does this process continue with the demise, with the death of this body? Um, so that's one fact that we have reincarnated several times in this life and will continue to do so. Uh, carne of course in latin means flesh. So reincarnation really means reinfleshing. And uh in fact, uh there's another pre-socratic philosopher. This is pre-socratic night here. So if you're a if you're a fan of pre-socratic philosophers, you get uh you get free food. Anyway, <laughs> Um, there's another pre-Socratic philosopher named Heraclitus who is famous for having said that and by the way to understand this he Heraclitus was a contemporary of Buddha and you may know that in Buddhism one of the main doctrines perhaps the central doctrine is the idea of Shunyata or Shunyavada which means emptiness sometimes misunderstood seriously misunderstood to mean that Buddhists believed or believe now that nothing exists, which is not at all what they meant. So that's not what they mean by voidism or emptiness. What they actually meant was that you cannot point to anything in this world, certainly not any physical object, that is one steady continuing object because things are constantly changing. you know, just a little bit of atomic science will confirm that. For example, uh, my body is certainly changing constantly. In fact, so getting back to to Heraclitus, Heraclitus, who's contemporary Buddha, and so this idea that everything is constantly in flux, so there's no uh, immutable, there's no thing that we can experience in the material world, which is just itself and never something else, which is what they meant by emptiness. The, The world is empty of a fixed object. Um Heraclitus said that you cannot step twice in the same river. You cannot step in the same river twice because the second time you step in the river, it's a new river. The water that you stepped in the first time is gone downstream, and there's new water. So you're stepping, you're not stepping in the same water you stepped in. And so uh my little cute little version of this is that um, you cannot breathe in the same body twice. Because if you remember your high school, um, you know, physiology or biology, I think I slept through those classes. But anyway, (laughs) I have a vague memory of having taken some class like that. But if you look at the level of microbiology, uh, your body's constantly, every time you breathe something that was part of your body is no longer part of your body. Every time you breathe out, and every time you breathe in, something that was not part of your body is now part of your body. So there is no fixed body, it's changing constantly. And by the way, Krishna himself <laughs> mentions this principle in Bhagavad Gita, he says adibhuto bhava that um, the sort of the governing principle of material nature is a constantly changing state. So materially, that's the condition. And so therefore the body you were born in is not the same body you have now. It's not that your baby body just stretched into your adult body, it's a different body. So even though, as I said, we've reincarnated, you actually reincarnated several times at least in this life, uh, still we know by examining our own deepest self awareness that it is you who are the baby, you who are the child, you are the adolescent, you are the adult. If, if you just examine your deepest self awareness, you will underst you will see immediately oh, everyone come forward just a little bit and make a little room. There you go. That, that didn't hurt, did it? So we examine our, our deepest self awareness. We know that it was me. So again, this is not um, this is not like really advanced science or something. It's very simple. You are the same person, the body is not the same body. Therefore it's simply not possible that you are your body it's just sorry if you were really you know kind of had your hopes set on that i hate to be the one to break this news to you the good news is that if you were your body you would have to die and probably maybe not exist anymore unless you believe in resurrection then bones shall rise again so But if we are the body, then you get the pleasure of annihilation. Whereas if you're not your body, then it opens up a whole new opportunity that you can actually exist forever. If you are not your body, you just have to figure out what you are. But now, um, so I mentioned this, so I'm gonna get back to the main topic here. So you have certain traditions in the world who have taught that uh, this is our first life, we didn't exist before, and therefore, as I said, uh, if you care about being a rational human being, if you don't wanna just be, let's say, religious fanatic or just sentimental, and you actually, if it's important to you that what you do and believe makes sense and is logical, then you cannot explain the fact of all the apparent injustice in the world if this is our first life, and the idea that there's a God who is all good, all knowing, and uh, all powerful. Because the simple atheistic argument, which is a valid argument, I think, if you're dealing with this idea of this is our first life, is that if God is all knowing, he knows that we're suffering. If God is all good, he wants to stop our suffering. If God is all-powerful, he can stop our suffering. So therefore, an all-knowing, all-good, all-powerful God would stop everyone's suffering, uh, but suffering doesn't stop. So therefore, there cannot exist a God who is all-good, all-knowing, and all-powerful. Of course, little footnote here, this argument, of course, would this atheistic argument would only be valid when talking about innocent people who are suffering. Because if someone is really a terrible person and then finally gets what they deserve, uh, that's not so much of a philosophical problem. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, but in the case of innocent people, children suffering, suffering, for example, or people who have led good lives and then something bad happens, So when bad things happen to good people, and to some extent, when really good things happen to really bad people, it becomes a philosophical problem. So again, the the atheist, and this is the main atheistic argument, by the way, the atheistic argument against God that that good people suffer uh, is not really a very strong argument if you understand that you are not your body, you are eternal, and basically, you uh, are getting good or bad what you deserve. Now it's interesting because people are so attached to the idea that we are the body. I've experienced this many times that I'll try to explain all this to someone and then at the end of it, they'll say, well, why is a baby suffering? And then I'll say, well, it's not really a baby. It's actually an eternal soul. I mean, what about if some baby suffers and it turns out that was like, I don't know, you know, baby Mao or something who killed tens of millions of people. Or, you know, that was, oh, it's cute little baby Hitler.
1: Uh Next slide, so.
0: (laughs) So anyway. So the problem, now, just one general point about what it means to be a perfect moral agent. And then I wanna get onto another, uh, I think bad argument against God. Um, in general, in general, in order, and by perfect moral agent, by the way, agent doesn't mean the person that books your travel or, I'm um, here agent in philosophy means someone who is acting out of their own free will and therefore is responsible for what they do. So that, for example, let's say you're walking down the street and someone pushes you and you fall into someone else and that person falls down, you did not just commit a crime because you were pushed and um, therefore you did not intentionally do that. But if you are walking down the street and just push someone and they fall, then you are responsible because you did choose to do it. By the way, I once saw in LA a great bumper sticker that said um, Humpty Dumpty was pushed.
1: <laughs> Conspiracy theory.
0: So, so therefore, what does it mean? Because God, I mean, God ultimately I, I believe that in order to really accept a candidate for God, seriously, or you know, if there is a God, in order to really worship a God, God would have to have certain characteristics. And I think one of the most important characteristics that a worshipable, rationally worshipable God would have to have is to be a perfect moral agent. And perfect moral agent means that um, everything God does, uh, and everything God does is intentional because no one forces God to act, that everything God does is morally justifiable. So that, for example, God does not punish people unfairly, nor reward people unfairly, that there really is justice under God. Because if there's not perfect justice under God, uh, God would not be a very attractive object of worship. So what in general would have to be the case in order for us to accept anyone as a perfect moral agent? One thing is, and let's talk about the suffering thing, you know, good people suffer. Um, Anyone who, under any circumstances, let's say causes some type of pain or suffering or trouble to another soul, uh, an example would be a dentist. (laughs) So, so let's look at the dentist the philosophy of dentistry, which is the real topic tonight, by the way. Anyway, let's say you go to the dentist, and um, the dentist tells you the good news, we have to do a procedure here, whatever, you know, hopefully not a root canal, don't wish a root canal on anyone. But let's say the dentist has to do some procedure. You expect, you demand, really, that the, that the dentist, as a civilized human being, has to cause you the least amount of pain possible in order to carry out a necessary procedure. Like, let's say the doctor does a procedure on you, and then you find out, well, you didn't really need that. I just you know, learned it in dental school, never really had a chance to try it out, and so... <laughs> Or let's say, for example, actually I could have done this in a less painful way, but I just, it's, it's kind of more fun for me this way. <laughs> or I just didn't want to see what would happen. Or I just thought I would test your tolerance to pain. <laughs> so again, in order for you to accept the dentist as acting morally, the dentist has to cause you The least amount of pain possible in order to achieve a necessary good. And so let's apply this to God. First of all, in a world in which we understand that we have many lives, and therefore uh, the idea is that we actually cause our own destiny, whether it's good or bad. I guess it's good karma to be born in New Zealand. Beautiful country, nice weather. I can't say I miss all the guns we have in America, it's amazing how easily I got over that. So in the case of God, in the case of God, um, it would have to be the case, in order for God to be a perfect moral agent, it would have to be the case that God causes people who suffer the least amount of suffering possible in order to achieve an essential good now someone could say that well that can't be true because some people really suffer terribly but then again it's like you know there, there's a term medical term invasive an invasive procedure i remember we had a uh, when i was growing up as, as, as a kid in los angeles we had this really nice uh, family doctor dr wayne hilton i remember his name and uh I actually became the head of a big medical corporation but So we would go, you know, get our medical checkups and and whenever he would say, you have to have a shot, I would always argue with him and say, look, whatever medicine you can put in the shot, you can put in a pill. (laughs) I was a little kid, but I'd
1: always
0: (laughs) And he would just laugh and uh, I'd get a shot. So. (laughs) So the idea is that would have to be the case. Now, someone could argue that it cannot possibly, logically be the case that anyone could do anything to deserve the kind of punishment this person suffered. But is that really necessarily a true argument? Because if you think about it, um, our behavior in this world is really only a symptom or a consequence of what's really happening, which is our mental state. And Krishna himself says in the Bhagavad Gita, by the way, when he says, Naiva kinshit ti manyeta yukdo manyeta tatwa that a tatwa vit, which is a knower of truth, and I won't go into the whole explanation, you the word tatwa is a special word for truth. Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita that learn the truth from those who are seers of truth. And the word tatwa, uh, Okay, I'll give you a very brief explanation of what it means because there are various words for truth But if, if you say like tell the truth, don't lie to me Actually, that was a song by uh, Paul Rear and the Raiders back in the 60s anyway So if you just mean in Sanskrit, tell the truth you poor guys, you know, you don't know all these great 60s songs <laughs> Anyway, I'm here to help you so if you just mean tell the truth, the word is satya, satya, like the truth. But tatwa, the word tat in Sanskrit, if you add an H, it's English, that, demonstrative pronoun. Uh, in other words, you say that when you're pointing something out, like that house, that person, that problem. And so therefore, because that is a demonstrative pronoun in this like highly sophisticated philosophical Sanskrit, it comes to mean a real thing because you can't demonstrate something that doesn't exist. You cannot truthfully say that about something that doesn't exist. And so therefore it comes to mean just a real thing as in om tat sat. That's that's what the word tat means there. So when you add in Sanskrit the the suffix twa, it's actually the same as adding in English ty, like uh, let's say, uh, what would it, felicity, or impossibility. So what does it mean to be an impossibility? It means a state of being impossible, or felicity, the state of being happy. So so TY in English means the state of being something, same thing sanskritwa, so tatwa means the state of being a real thing. And therefore it comes to mean one of the fundamental categories of real things. And it's in that sense you get Terms like jiva tattva. Jiva means living entity related to of course of Latin. You know, viva, viva, long live. That's actually Sanskrit jiva. They actually say that in Sanskrit jiva, jiva, like long live someone. So, anyway, jiva tattva means a fundamental category which is the jiva, the individual soul. So, we are in the jiva category as a real thing. Or there's Vishnu tattva, the category of God. So that's what tetra means. So, uh, what was the word we were explaining with tetra? No one remembers. please. What? No, I was talking about. I got into tetra. I knew I shouldn't have done that. I guess got into my grammar and forgot. But anyway. So, um, so talking about um, God as a moral agent. See if I remember what I was saying. Um, oh. I know. Uh, Krishna says, tattva-vit. I remembered it. See that? At my age, you didn't and I did. So so Krishna says that one who is yukta, one who is actually engaged in yoga or spiritual practice, uh, one who's actually engaged in spiritual practice and who knows tattva, in other words, knows the difference between the body, which is prakriti-tattva, nature, and jiva, the actual soul so if you know these categories then you know that when the body is acting it's not really you're not really doing anything if you think when you do something with your body anything if you think that you really did it that's a category mistake because you are the soul inside the body and therefore uh, what you are, what we are responsible for is our state of mind. Because people sometimes say, well, how can I learn from karma because I don't remember what I did in my past life? And um, this actually misses the point. Because let's say my past <laughs> life, I performed certain good deeds or bad deeds. Uh, the fact that my body carried out good and bad deeds is really just a consequence of the fact that I, my real actions as a soul were actions of consciousness. In other words, I made choices. I made conscious choices to move my body in a certain way or not to act, perhaps when I should have acted. And so therefore, what karma is really focusing on is not just the body because that was just... It's like, let's say someone shoots another person. That's a real American example. You gotta love the American way. So anyway, let's say someone shoots another person. They don't put the gun on trial. They put the person on trial. The NRA, National Rifle Association, which is uh, does a remarkable amount of evil in the world, they, um, they're they the ones sort of, you know, politically behind uh, all these things. And so they have this saying, which is idiotic, which is that, you know, uh, guns don't kill people, people kill people, which is, of course, absurd, because the real point is people with guns kill people. People without guns very rarely kill people. People with guns are usually the ones that kill people. But anyway... So you could say that, comparing that, like, like, let's say, you, the soul, you, by your own free will, choose to act in a certain way. So the details of what kind of body you had, what country you were in, or what planet you were on, that's just an external thing. What really happened and what you're really responsible for by karma is your state of mind, your conscious decision. For example, even legally, if let's say this person tells that other person to go steal and the person does it, the person who gave the order is legally responsible. It is criminal behavior to induce or command or force another person to commit a criminal act. And so the soul commands the body to act in a certain way. And therefore, even from the point of view of ordinary uh, jurisprudence, the person who gave the command is responsible. And therefore, remembering all the little details of what you did, like what kind of body you had, was I good looking? You know, all that stuff, (laughs) that's not really important. What is important is the state of mind and the state of mind that produced certain kinds of behavior is still there. It's still available to you. It's still, of course, in yoga, it's called sanskarath, which is your our, our deep mental states or conditioning. So it's not true that you're being punished for something you can't remember or have no access to. So therefore, how do I get the benefit of it if I don't remember what I'm being punished for? Actually, you do have access because if you go deep into your own consciousness, you can discover the mentality inside of yourself that produced a particular karmic reaction. So anyway, so the argument against God, the argument from evil or the problem of evil in the world, which uh, you know the argument goes means there cannot be a God who's all knowing, all good and all powerful, uh, only works in a system in which one assumes that we are created from nothing for the first time in this life. Another, I want to get to a more specific argument against God. In in a sense, not not merely an argument against God, but an argument against a personal God, and an argument specifically against a personal God who has a form, such as Krishna, our guy. (laughs) (laughs) So... Hey, man, are you a Hare Krishna? (laughs) So... And so what I'd like to do is speak philosophically about the idea of form. Because the typical argument goes, and I think it's ultimately not a valid argument, the argument goes that forms are limiting. God is unlimited, ergo, therefore God doesn't have a form. Because an unlimited being cannot have limiting characteristics. That's the basic argument, right? So let us explore that argument philosophically. First of all, I read in a book once, uh, there was an interesting group of people back in ancient Greece, go back to Greece again, uh, called the Orphics, who I guess worshiped Orpheus. And they had a very interesting take a very interesting conception of take on uh, form they argued that actually form breaks limits and i'll give you a few examples for example let's say you just take a hunk of clay and which could only have meaning to someone that's into modern art and not not to any any anyway, rational human being so so let's say just say you take a hunk of clay. Now it's sort of formless, just a hunk. What does it mean? Of course, I mean if you want to just use it as type of I guess three-dimensional Rorschach test, then you can you know you can start interpreting. I see my mommy beating me, or I see, I see this, I see that all women hate me, or something. You know you could. That's what they do. Like they like they have this psychology test. You just give someone a few dots, and then they tell a the story about these dots, and then it all comes out, we have little figures. These are actually standard modalities in psychotherapy. Anyway, so in that sense, it's not really the art itself, it's just the art as a springboard for someone to use their own imagination and bring up their own deep psychology. But in terms of what a hunk of clay means explicitly, in a sense that in a, an explicit communicable way, in other words, for example, let's say we all go out on the street and there's a red light. Let's say we're walking and we all come to a red light. And let's say none of us is an anarchist and none of us is suicidal. Then we all stop at the red light. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, although an anarchist or a suicidal person might not stop. So, so the idea is there are certain meanings, you know, things that's what do they call that, Semiotic you know the uh you know study of signs and 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 the semantics of signs anyway forget all that so so the idea is when we say a hunk of clay that clay has very 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 little meaning in terms of something which any normal person could understand if you want to bestow upon it some wildly individualistic meaning that comes from only you would understand have fun but in a public communicable sense, uh, it has no meaning. Now, in the hands of a, of, of a skilled sculptor, the more the sculptor shapes that clay, the more the sculptor gives form to the clay, the more meaning it starts to have. And there are some sculptures like the David of Michelangelo that you know, millions and millions of people just stand there looking at and finding meaning you know, for centuries. Here's another example, music. If someone just let's say does a monotone or just random noise, of course we would call that modern music.
1: <laughs>
0: you know, modern academic music, but let's say let's say we want real music. And so if you just take sound, just noise, again, how much public meaning? By public meaning I mean, what does it mean to any normal person? But in the hands of a gifted composer, I personally am a big fan of Baroque music, uh, which I also play. Roughly uh, 1600 to they say 1750 because Bach died in 1750, but that's absurd because Handel died in 1759, so that didn't just stop on Handel. Died. Anyway, so that those are roughly the dates for Baroque music, and it's 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 absolutely some of the most perhaps the most sophisticated music I think ever composed, they, they had this, just sort of this mind-boggling mastery of counterpoint, which means introducing linear voices. Anyway, forget that, but. So, let's say whatever your favorite music is, um, in the hands of a very gifted composer, the more the music is shaped and formed, the more meaning it has. It starts to become unlimited. And finally, language. Language is actually, you know, it may seem simple like, hey, how you doing? What's up? Uh, But when they try to model language on computers, have you ever wondered why uh, when they say, hi, I'm a computer, I can understand complete sentences, and they never can. And the reason is because language is incredibly complicated. It's incredibly sophisticated, minor variations in syntax, word order or semantics or or all kinds of things. Language is extremely complex. And so the fact that I'm speaking now and, you know, you understand English, you're understanding it, is uh, what your brain is doing is almost inconceivably complicated. And so therefore, when you, if I just, let's say you came to this program and I just sat up here and started going, uh, and, and you said, okay, this is an interesting angle, but let's say, like, 45 minutes passed and I was still just grunting. So, maybe I'm just a postmodern philosopher. Anyway. But the idea is, the more... The more we can shape sound, shape it grammatically, semantically, syntactically, there's literally, there's no limit to what you can express. So this was the Orphic idea that form actually breaks down limits, that the more things are skillfully formed, uh, the more unlimited they become visually, audibly, in every way. And so... uh, Okay, what about if you say, well, take the contour of your body? Let, let's say, let's talk about the three dimensional perimeter of your body, which you could say it's a limitation. It's not only a definition, it's a limitation because the perimeter of your body is what separates your body spatially from everything else, whether it's a wall or just space it's, itself. And so, how could something which limits It defines by limiting the shape and contour and the spatial extension of your body. So doesn't your body limit you? Maybe having a human body breaks down limits in the sense you can do all kinds of interesting things, but spatially, it's certainly a limit. So um, what about the case of a god who is everywhere, who has a body, but is everywhere. And so therefore, or for example, you cannot say sanely, I mean, logically, you cannot say that at the same time, in the same relevant sense, you are in the room and the room is in you. I mean, don't try this at home, you can hurt yourself. (laughs) So, you, you, it's, it's, it's impossible that at the same time, in the same relevant sense, you are in the room and the room is in you. However, Krishna makes that claim in Bhagavad Gita in chapter 9. He says that everything is in me and I am in everything. And so clearly this is not Newtonian physics. It's not even quantum mechanics you know, physics. This is this is a transcendental physics in which everything operates according to other rules. And so if you study, in other words, what I want to say is the people who for thousands of years have been uh, studying and serving Krishna, they're not just sort of pre-philosophical numbskulls. You know, they're, they're not people that just never knew that forms are limiting. Oh, my God, no one ever told me that. I guess I wasted my life, Shani Hare Krishna. It's, um, really the problem is that the arguments against God having form are uh, naive and um, not very philosophical, actually. they just People just kind of say it without really giving arguments. So... Oh, someone could say, well, Krishna's form is limiting limiting because he's blue, he's not other colors. So, you know, he's not a rainbow deity. (laughs) (laughs) But the fact is that Krishna has unlimited forms. For example, the Brahma Sangita says, uh, oh my God, advaitam, yeah, I got it. advaitam achutti manadi mananta Rupa. That Krishna is advaita, he's not uh there's no duality between himself and his form. I mean it's not that in Krishna's case he's not his body. Krishna actually is his body. So there's no duality there. And the uh, chutam infallible uh Advaitam achyutam, uh Chutam Anadi beginningless Krishna's beginningless and uh he has infinite forms infinite forms and so, one could argue that is true that within, if you look at all the, well you can't look at all the forms of Krishna because you haven't got that much time. Mm-hmm. And he has infinite forms but um, you will, one could say that you will find every possible geometric shape and form within all of Krishna's incarnations. Every color everything. And so, Krishna is within everything. Everything is within Krishna. So, Uh, This is not a naive, pre-philosophical, religious claim. It's actually based on a very deep understanding of the nature of reality. So again, this argument that, you know, there cannot be a God with a form because blah, blah, blah. uh, There is a response to that. It's not really a, a knockdown, knockout argument. So, um, as far as another argument against God, perhaps, would be that, uh, people claiming representing God do bad things sometimes. Well, people claiming to represent everything do bad things. People claiming to represent atheism in the 20th century, uh, you know, murdered about a hundred million innocent people, maybe 200 million. So, uh, because after all, the Nazis were not like pious Christians and, uh, Mao's and atheists, Khmer Rouge that murdered twenty percent of the population of Cambodia, twenty percent, basically anyone that had over a high school education, it's um and that didn't kind of dumb themselves down very quickly and very convincingly. I mean, New Zealand has roughly five million people, and so imagine a di- I mean, I would never wish this upon you. Imagine if in New Zealand, I mean recently just a couple days ago there was some poor girl from England that was killed. It was like a national trauma. Imagine someone that killed one million Kiwis. Like a million. That's what atheists did in Cambodia in the 20th century. They killed 20% of the country. Mao killed God knows how many tens of millions. It's very interesting because some people, especially sort of, you know, intellectual academic types think that Marxism is still kind of a little sexy at least. But in fact, people claiming to be following Marx or communism killed between 10 and 20 times more people than Hitler. So if you think, it's cool to be a Marxist, it's, uh, maybe it's even more cool to be a Nazi, because after all, they killed a lot less people. So, um, anyway, I don't think I need to comment on this, on the, uh, just the brilliant insight of certain people uh, in our society. So, again, the argument that people representing religion have done bad things, hey... People do bad things representing everything. Basically, whatever wherever power lies, if there's power in an atheistic movement like the Bolshevik movement or Marxism, then people that get power will do bad things. If there's power in religion, some people will try to get that power and they'll do bad things. So anyway, maybe I'll I'll stop here. And if anyone has another argument they'd like to discuss against God, we could. Have some fun. <laughs> <laughs> there are any other question? Yes.
1: So, yeah, unfortunately, I
0: don't know. I'm not sure. Oh, someone. Else, I mean, we need someone else translate the German. Who can translate the German? Oh, you can. Oh, good. Go ahead.
1: Because
0: uh, I can understand a lot of it, but I'm, I, I want to make sure I get precisely what you say. So, go ahead.
1: Uh, the thing is, I can
0: also put in English. Too. Yeah, yeah. Um, Erkan, Erkan, uh,
1: is, do you believe there's only one right choice in religion?
0: Oh, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. Good question. Gute Frage. Danke. Um, do I think there's only one right choice in religion? I would say there are many good choices in the sense that if someone... I do believe there's a hierarchy of knowledge. But that's very different than saying there's only one true religion. For example, let's say... Let's say I'm a scientist. Let's say I do physics. And there are different theories and let's say there are several good theories. They're put forward by intelligent scientists, they have arguments, but ultimately I believe there is a a theory which is the best. Or for example, let's say in another field, maybe to make it more clear, let's say in history. Let's say we're trying to understand uh, why Uh, a group of English citizens revolted against their mother country in 1776 in the American colonies. Because almost up until the day of the war, they very much believed they were English citizens. And their main complaint was actually that they were not being given the rights of Englishmen. But anyway, so of course the different scholars put forward theories of uh, why? What led to the war, or why the Americans won the war against the greatest military power in the world at that time? And so, if you you know when you go to the university, you see that scholars disagree. You know, they debate. They have different views. But I think it's fair to say that any qualified scholar will have something important to say. We may ultimately think, well, this is a better interpretation, but there's always some merit. You know, any serious scholar will, will, will come up with some ideas that should be considered, that have some, uh, you know, merit to them. Even though we may, I may think, well, I don't think that's the best explanation, but you can learn something there.
1: Yeah.
0: And so I think, I think that's my attitude toward the many religions in the world. I think, I mean, first of all, I would reject anyone claiming to be religious who is doing evil in the world. Like people that kill innocent people in the name of God, I think, are just, you know, yeah, they're not contenders. So, one second. So among people, let's say among people who claim to be worshiping the divine, however they understand that, And let's say if they have good principles, for example, they believe that on their path they should be charitable, they should help other people, they should not be cruel to any other creature, including non-humans, they should not cause pain and cruelty to other creatures. And um, so they believe there's some kind of divine power that is itself good and requires goodness in the followers. So I think that idea is true, and so anyone that has some version of that is um, doing good in the world, or I think they're making progress in their own life. So and and, and the, the, there are certain basic ideas. For example, the idea of an eternal soul, which you find, by the way, also in in, in most forms of Buddhism, which uh, you know, the kind, of, the, the kind of Buddhism that was marketed to uh, Western people is not the Buddhism that became a world religion. So, basically, in all the world, and also in, in a particular, you see, I mean, ultimately, I would say, it's not really a question of, let's say, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism. Well, I think that's misleading, because, for example, take in the Islamic tradition, you have Sufis who were basically the Muslim bhakti yogis. And so you find a lot of uh, very beautiful expressions of pure devotion. There's one, uh, I forget the name, there was one, I said one great Sufi poet. Rumi? Um, and it might have been Rumi, I, I, it might have been a lady actually, but, 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 but the, the saying was that if I worship God to go to heaven, let me go to hell. In other words, let me just love God purely. In fact, if you look, there are, um, for example, if you look at medieval Judaism, although uh, Maimonides is like the big hero for many Jews, uh, I think he was not the actual hero. I think there were other groups at the time who had a much better spiritual, Jewish groups that had a much better spiritual understanding that talked about a spiritual body of God. And... uh, about a spiritual body of God and, and, and I mean so I think in all these traditions so you can find the bhakti yogis in every tradition and the bhakti yogis in every tradition those who are really devoted and have a serious spiritual practice to devote themselves fully to God whether it's in a Christian tradition Jewish Muslim Hindu Buddhist whatever those people I would say are are have a lot more in common often than they have in common with other people in their own religion. And and so what's interesting about the Bhagavad Gita is that it it doesn't give anything like sectarian religion. Krishna is not a jealous god. And and so um, Krishna talks about different spiritual paths like Bhakti or Gyan, where, where you just try to cultivate knowledge. And in every religion, in every religion, you will find people that try to understand the absolute intellectually or through you know philosophy or theology. So as far as like like, if you imagine knowledge like a pyramid, and so at the base of the pyramid, there are lots of people. So for example, all the people in the world who understand in some way or other that there's a God. So they all agree on that. And then if you get, keep going up, then all the people that understand that God wants you to love everyone and not kill other people if they don't belong to your religion, that's less people, actually, unfortunately. But it's still, you know, a lot of people. And then the number of people that also understand that we are not just physical bodies. We are actually souls. And it's actually our soul that returns to God. Again, there are a lot of people in, in, in hundreds of traditions that understand that. And so basically what we're saying is that as you get to the more and more advanced knowledge that Krishna is giving something which is unique. But that's just the, so to speak, the cherry on the top of the cake. And, and actually, um, you, you know, people that say oh, there's so many religions and they all say that only they have the truth, which is absolutely not true or that they say that and they and all their claims contradict each other which is absolutely not true so people that say oh all the religions say the same thing uh the only people that say that are people that have never really studied world religions but if you look at the at the basic claims for example in islam they claim that god sent a prophet muhammad the prophet and muhammad heard directly from god well through the angel Gabriel, and then took dictation to write the Quran. So, but the claim is that God sent a prophet. Or uh, in in Christianity, especially uh, early Christianity, that was actually based on what Jesus said, not based on pagan speculation centuries later. Jesus is the Son of God. And so there's the claim that God sent His His Son to the world. Or in uh, Judaism, you have you have prophets. You have Moses, you have God communicating with various people. The claim that God himself actually came to this world and lived a full life in this world, that claim is only made by one tradition. So it's not that someone else is saying, no, God came to this world and he spoke this book. No, God came to the world's no, there's only one tradition that actually says that. And so, in promoting this idea, we're not we're not actually contradicting any other religion. We're not competing with any other religion. And um, so that's how I see it. Yeah. Mach-nice. Yes, uh oh,
1: uh, I just have a question at the beginning. You said uh, that something cannot come from nothing, uh, when you're describing like atheists and how they would question you. And my question would be, how did uh, Krishna start everything? How did the world come to be? Yes, and then I guess, yeah, how did Krishna come?
0: Uh, First of all, um, the world, or ourselves, uh, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, Chapter 13, prakriti purushaṁ caiva vidhiraṁ dihubhāvapi Know that um, both material nature and souls are beginningless. So, everything that exists, everything that exists is either God or the energy of God. What's that?
1: Sound, vibration, and form. We've created through sound, these vibration, Yeah, but I'm kind of going at
0: this from a different angle right now. Thank you. So, (laughs) So, everything that exists is either God or God's energy. And it's in that sense that we get the statement in Bhagavad Gita, Vasudeva Sarvamiti, that one who finally is enlightened understands that Vasudeva Krishna is everything. Not that I am God, but in the sense that I am God's energy. So in that sense, there's nothing but God and his energy. So because God has always existed, we are conditioned in this world, because we've been in this world for a while, and in this world, everything begins and ends. And so we're conditioned to think that that's kind of normal. But actually, it's not normal. It's um, it's just the material world. <sighs> For example, let's say you go to a movie. And in the movie, you know, the movie begins and ends. You know, it's a nice story. It begins. And then the movie ends. Within, you know, two hours or less, a normal movie but you existed before the movie started and you existed after the movie ends. And so in that sense, this world is this type of theater. And so it's only in this world that things appear to begin and end. And even the energy itself, the material energy has always existed in different forms. So because everything is God's energy and God has always existed, there never was a time when God was, had less energy than He does now, and so His energy has always existed. So everything uh, that exists now has always existed. Not in a, and the difference between souls and nature is that, um, for example, let's let's say the uh, the energy, the, the the atoms or molecules in this water bottle, the bottle, sorry, it's plastic in the bottle and the water um, has always existed. The water, for example, might have, I mean, who knows where it's been in the universe. It's been many other things. It, it, you know, it, it's been earth, it's been fire, it's been all kinds of things. Right now, it's water. And it's gonna be, you know I'm gonna drink it, it will sort of you know biologically become part of my body and then other things will happen and then it'll go somewhere else. But, it, but the energy itself has always existed and always will exist. So, so nothing actually, only put it positively, everything that exists now has always existed, including Krishna. And that's the normal state of things. We're just conditioned by our life in this world to think that things actually end. And even in science, they talk about the conservation of energy, right? That energy is never created or destroyed; it just becomes transmuted. So you, and then and then you had a question. Yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah, uh, just about karma you were talking about earlier, um, and how we, in previous lives if we do certain acts, then we have to reap it in the next life. So what what happens if you come from like an animal body? Because they don't accumulate. My understanding is that you don't accumulate karma through that process because right, you have to go right, through the process. Right. 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 So what happens to those souls that have?
0: Um, you're right, because we can say, like, good doggie, but, or bad doggie, but. So, um, if a soul is coming up, if a soul is coming up, then it seems reasonable to assume that that soul would just sort of get a neutral life, you know, wouldn't be subject to any horrible suffering, might not be born with a silver spoon in their mouth
1: but would just sort of
0: have a regular life in which they could, again, start to make choices. If I was God, that's why I do it. <laughs> so, any, any else? Well, thank you all. Thank you all very much.
1: Okay. Yeah. asked me once if I believe that um, God is a fool, um, do you believe that he's a fool? A living form since you don't believe in in the coming of,
0: of Jesus, and you don't. Oh, I, I'm not saying Jesus won't come. I mean, Jesus can come Jesus if he did wants. <laughs> he did yeah, this, yeah, he um, did exist. I know that. Been proven
1: to, you know, stuff. But I well, to know mostly, mostly what through what the what testimony mean?
0: of third-party Roman Jesus. historians. So do
1: you do you pay do you pay towards Krishna a full a blue form, or do you actually just pay to um to the absolute space and the energy that created that. So, who do you have? Well, yeah, we don't, believe
0: there's some, we don't believe there's some other absolute that created Krishna. We believe that Krishna is kind of the buck stops there, you know, ontologically. So, yeah, we do uh, personally deal with Krishna. Okay, so you believe there's only
1: Krishna?
0: No, not only Krishna. I said a little while ago that God has infinite forms. And also, God um, reciprocates with people. So, for example, if someone in a different tradition somehow is devoted to God in another way, then and, and they're sincere, God will reciprocate with them.
1: So do you believe that God chooses people to reciprocate with
0: them? I think God just reciprocates. In other words, if someone is interested in God, then he reciprocates. No, as far as predestinarianism, I think that's insane. That was an idea that came in with the Protestant Reformation, people like Calvin who, uh, among his other recreation, you know, things he did, you know, he burned his theological enemies alive at the stake, which was not nice. But anyway, it's the idea of predestinarianism, the idea that God, the idea was they were trying to emphasize the independence of God, that no one can... Uh, limit God's independence, and therefore God himself has chosen a relatively tiny number, small number of people who will be saved and go to eternal heaven. Everybody else goes to eternal hell, and God doesn't even have to have a good reason for it. It's not like Jesus said, by the way, that, um, you know, the the people who do good in the world, you know, those who, as you you treat the lowest of my people, so, you know, that's what will happen to you. So the people who go to heaven are because they were kind, because they love God with all their heart, but love their neighbor as themselves. And so this other thing is God doesn't have to. It's, it's amazing how many light years away from Jesus they went. But this group, you know, they believe that um, God doesn't have to give any good reasons. He just felt like it you know okay i just feel like torturing you forever you know why not <laughs> <laughs> and i'm god so and i can do it so i will do it i mean this is this is like really brilliant stuff <laughs> so yeah god does not choose someone to reciprocate with he just reciprocates it's we that make the choice if you're interested in krishna he'll be happy to talk to you if you're not interested he he won't bother you
1: one <laughs> you you saying that you don't
0: believe in the resurrection so can you talk uh, about i you said that i didn't say i didn't believe in it uh, as far as uh you know there are different theories some people say jesus didn't die on the cross and they give medical arguments some people say he went to kashmir some people say he went to glastonbury england he went to the right hand of god i do not claim to be an authority on that I I certainly admire Jesus as far as, uh, you know, some people, you have a few people at the time claimed that they saw Jesus rise. I don't know if those people were reliable witnesses. (laughs) and, 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 And whether they were or not doesn't really lessen my appreciation of Jesus. My admiration of Jesus is based on his life and his teachings, not on the claim that a few people made actually that uh, they saw him rising it's not because of that that i respect jesus yes
1: question on karma is karma like a judgment from god or is it merely a reaction
0: Is judgment a say it again one more time?
1: Judgment. I was just thinking of Judgment
0: Day, one of the Terminator movies. Yes. Judgment
1: from God or a reaction?
0: Uh, it's both. Actually, here I will quote a very, very famous question posed by Socrates to a sort of a self-righteous fool named Euthyphro. And he, this is what he asked Euthyphro. He's very famous in Western philosophy. He said, do the gods love certain actions because they are... Or he said, are certain actions good? Are certain actions, you know, morally good or religious because the gods love those actions? Or do the gods love those actions because they are good? And, of course, in the first case, you get a whimsical god that just... Which is exactly what you get, for example, in Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey. That's why Plato, in the Republic, insists that you know we shouldn't corrupt our children by teaching them Homer, which was a very radical thing to say at the time, because, like in, in say, in the Iliad, the Odyssey, you'll have a situation, say, in the Iliad, where Zeus is with his wife Hera on Mount Olympus, looking down at the battlefield in Troy, and will say, um, "See that Trojan soldier down there? I'm going to kick his. You know, I'm going to." I'm just going to wipe him out. And Herod said, well, why is this? I just don't like him. What did he do to you? Nothing. But but he's fighting against my, my friend over there. So the gods act like adolescents. They just, you know, they favor people. They're, they, they're not fair. They're not just. And so that's not really God. And Plato said that's absurd. If there's a god, there must be justice, real justice. And so what's interesting in Bhagavad Gita this is one, one thing I find quite interesting, is that there are no penalties in Bhagavad Gita for not accepting Krishna. For example, Krishna talks about these three qualities of nature, modes of nature, which are goodness, passion, and ignorance. And um, he says that those who, are, who live a life of virtue, of goodness, one thing he says, they, they are elevated. They're elevated in their next life, they take higher birth. And then he says, Tasmat satum Nirmalatan, that sattva is relatively pure and therefore prakashakam, it's enlightening, just virtue. Goodness is is is, is enlightening. It's um, and he says that it, that goodness brings knowledge and happiness. And yet he says, Yajante satvika devan, those who are in goodness worship the the, the gods you know, who are servants of the Supreme God. In other words, they don't even worship Krishna. So according to Bhagavad Gita, you can be happy, wise, and upwardly mobile without worshiping Krishna. Uh, If you're just a good person. So this is not a jealous God. And, but Krishna says, if you want me, then you have to, you know, it's like, let's say a guy wants to win the favor of a girl, but he just goes out with all the other girls in town. And then he says to her, so, do you accept me? <laughs> Probably not. If she's, like, you know, healthy. So, Christian just says, you get whatever you want. I reciprocate. So, what, so you are the architect of your own destiny if you want krishna if you don't want krishna you're not going to get you know tortured because you didn't love krishna you're just going to get what you deserve according to the moral quality of your of your acts <clears throat> what determines what you get back
1: what you deserve
0: well it depends on what you did i mean certain actions cause happiness and cause uh, flourishing for example, let's say promoting healthy, natural food in society is virtuous because it promotes health, and healthy people will be happier and have better lives. Uh, you know, promoting horrible food, that actually, you know, carcinogenic <clears> food <throat> like meat, eating red meat, as we now know, is you know the same healthwise as smoking a lot of cigarettes. So, and not to speak of the the cruelty. So. We can measure how much goodness you brought to the world. Did you actually promote happiness among human beings and other creatures? Health, happiness, wisdom, or the opposite? And so these are measurable things. So ultimately, you decide. Yeah, don't blame God. Actually, it's interesting because... There was actually a uh, sort of an invalid argument. There there was a time, there was a a very interesting time in Indian history when Buddhism was flourishing in India, and of course the Vedic path also. And they had these very interesting debates uh, on all sides. And there were, were on the Hindu or Vedic side, there were different scholars holding different viewpoints. And they had fascinating debates. It was intellectually a very rich time in history. And one of the arguments given by the Buddhists against the, say, the Vaishnavas, those who worship Krishna, was actually a uh, was actually not a correct argument. They said that in Buddhism, because the Buddhists accepted karma, so they said that in Buddhism you just get what you deserve, whereas in Hinduism you are subjected to the whims of gods and goddesses. And in fairness to the Buddhists. Uh, there were and still are people in India that, you know, are very superstitious, and, and you, this is a type of religion. You find it in Europe, uh, in the pagan world, bless you, in the pagan world, and also you find it even in the Middle Ages for various reasons, kind of like this magical Harry Potter worldview where bad things can happen to you, not because you did something bad, because you stepped on the wrong plant, or you, you know, sneezed on a Wednesday facing north. And, uh, I mean, nonsense like that could never enter, enter into the Hare Krishna movement. And so it's kind of this sort of magical stuff where you get punished or rewarded not because of the moral quality of what you do, but just because of all these magical forces that you trigger or invoke and so on. And of course, India is up to here with this stuff. And some of our more thoughtful devotees kind of, you know, bring that stuff back to the Western world to help rationalize us. So like, you know, if you step on a line of this, there's just all kinds of crazy things that have absolutely zero ethical component. It has nothing to do with helping yourself or others or harming yourself or others. It's just this magical world of, you know, all these unseen forces. And, and so this totally non-ethical Harry Potter version of punishment and reward uh, is not at all what Krishna teaches. That's not at all what Krishna teaches. And, and so therefore the argument of the Buddhists, I mean, it, it was a valid argument against some forms of Hinduism that were sort of Harry Potterites, you know, even in, in ancient India. However, it's not a valid argument against what we're doing. It has no place in the Bhagavad Gita. Because in the Bhagavad Gita, what you get absolutely just depends on the quality of what you do. It's not about... um, And as far as even worshipping the Devas, we call the demigods, you could say, well, you have to worship. No, because first of all, the word worship, Krishna actually doesn't say worship. I mean, he uses the the verb yajante, they yaj, which... Sometimes translated worship doesn't really mean that in this case. It really means just not being a shoplifter. Because Krishna explains in the Bhagavad Gita that all the the benefits we get in this world, for example, it rains. And without rain, food doesn't grow. And so, you know, our very life, you know, these things are not for free. Someone is actually giving us the air we breathe the water that nourishes our food and nourishes us, uh, this is actually coming from somewhere. And so when Krishna says that those in goodness offer back to the gods, he says because, one who enjoys all these benefits and doesn't pay for them at the checkout counter, uh, is just a thief. Krishna says is, is nothing but a thief. So we may not know, or modern people may not know how the universe operates, but that doesn't mean in Vedic culture they had to dumb themselves down for us. Because what we find actually in all ancient civilizations, whether it's, you know, the Greek civilization, uh, you know, or ancient cultures in other parts of the world, certainly in India, is that there were previous ages, people were more advanced, and they actually had communication with other beings. And so over time, this stuff kind of, the stories degrade and degenerate until it becomes seen as mythology. But mythology, what we call mythology is just a corrupted version of what was actual history. So therefore, when they say, when Krishna says that you have to offer back to these people, all he's saying is don't walk out of the supermarket without paying. You know, don't go to the store load up your trolley and then just walk out without paying. That's what he's saying. So, so, but apart from that, apart from not being a shoplifter, uh, there are no quote unquote religious requirements if you're just a good person. But if you want to live with Krishna, if you want to go to Krishna's world, then you have to show some interest in Krishna. It's like if you apply for, a, say, a prestigious university, which is very competitive, hard to get in, and they say, and, and you write in your essay that I don't really care very much about going to your university. I thought I might do you guys a favor. <laughs> you know, you're not going to get in. And so, I mean, how many good friends do you have that you really, you know, keep as your good friends who are not really interested in you? You know, these total, totally asymmetrical relationships where all the friendship is on one side and the other side there's nothing but sort of indifference, even abuse, right? I mean, you don't want to be in a relationship like that. And so in the same way, why would Krishna reveal himself to someone who's not interested in Krishna? We, we don't do that. I mean, there are people, I guess, who are you know go on television, tell the whole world all their life secrets and everything, but you know, I'm not one of those people.
1: Yes. We have one more question. We'll just make that one the last the last question. It's not going to be a riot, because we only have one more question. Are okay. you okay with that? There's sure. dinner coming. Dinner. Yeah. Sorry, I know I'm holding everybody back. That's all right. I'm trying to understand the distinction between, when you said punishment, so if it's a punishment or if it's something that we're more in
0: control of. Well, we call punishment ultimately in, in an enlightened society, certainly in God's system. Punishment is simply a way of educating you. For example, what child psychology proves is that children need two things. They need love and they need boundaries. In fact, children, if they're not given boundaries, they interpret that as they're not loved. If a child is being taken care of by someone, a parent or some other caretaker, and, they, and, and, and the caretaker or parents let the child do whatever they want, there are no rules, children understand that to mean these, this person doesn't love me. So children need love and boundaries. And, and boundaries have to be enforced so that if you cross the boundary, something happens which discourages you from again crossing that boundary. And so you can, for your own good, you can call that punishment if you want, but ultimately it's for your own good. Yes? Is
1: it true that like positive reinforcement is better at shaping behavior than like punishment? Is what? Is better at shaping behavior than like punishment?
0: Um, there are certain extreme forms of punishment which are shown to be not so effective, but um, like, like, like physical punishment or something like that. But um, there are basically, okay, I'll just be very honest with you. I think there's, I think there's a bunch. I think the, the academy, the universe, have been taken over by extreme leftist people. We have all kinds of theories. I think they produce an absolute catastrophe. What we see now is this theory of only positive reinforcement. We, have, we now have a very common phenomenon in the United States, and perhaps you also have been gifted with this, where university students uh believe many of them that if anyone disagrees with them on political issues that is a medical threat to them that is a threat to their well-being and they need a safe space where they can be protected from the fact that someone actually just disagrees with them (laughs) and you know when i when i went to college uh very short time ago um
1: <laughs>
0: that was the whole reason you'd go to college because you wanted to debate you wanted to test your ideas and test other people's ideas. There was this healthy, robust you know mood of like stretching your mind, exercising your intelligence and you know you have debates now, if someone disagrees with these people, you know that you've heard the term the nanny state they could now they now call this the ninny state. Where they like Brown University, one of the most prestigious, you know, Ivy League school. And because some conservative speaker came on campus, they had the safe space where they played this music in the background of like little dogs, puppies barking, and they had little, you know, play doh and toys to play with so that, you know, these the students could be protected from, you know, having to even see someone who disagrees with them. And so, yeah, this is actually going on. And, and it's, it's becoming a laughing stock. You know, This a lot of the left is becoming a laughing stock. So, so I'm, I'm not on the other side either. I didn't vote for Trump. But the point is that, um, so, so some of the top psychologists in the country are trying to figure out what the hell's going on? Like what happened to college students? Because it used to be, if you study history, it used to be on college campuses that although the administration sometimes would want to, let's say, limit who could speak on campus. campus or the teachers, but the students were always the bastion of free speech. That historically, college students were the ones that all, like, bring it on. You know, let's hear all the different ideas. They wanted to debate, they liked it. Now you get a case where you get some of the administrators saying, well, let's have free speech, and the students are demanding that anyone that disagrees with them not be allowed on campus. Which there's a you know word for it in English, it's fascism. So demanding that. And so you have case after case after case for very qualified speakers, people who you know have the, the highest degrees from the best universities, people who make reasonable arguments. You may not agree, but they're 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 making arguments with evidence and you know and they know history and they know social science. But if they're not politically correct, this, you know, students sometimes in some place try to physically block them from speaking on campus or shout them down or they get all the tickets and then don't go. In other words, you know, there's an idea, again, I'm not on the right, by the way, I'm not like a right-wing person, but, but a lot of young people especially think that somehow the left stands for free speech. Are you dreaming? If you look at the 20th century, for example, virtually every time a hard left party took over a country, the first thing it did is abolish free speech and even start killing anybody that uh, disagreed with them. That's what happened in Russia. That's what happened in Cambodia. That's what happened in Cuba, where they would literally machine gun people who simply tried to sail a boat off the island. They would just machine gun them. Prison states. And so I don't know how I got into that, but
1: I, but I thought I just so
0: yeah so I so I, I think I mean as someone trying to serve Krishna again I'm not I'm not a, a right wing person I just think we have to be fair and open and look at what's really going on so that idea that the only positive of course positive reinforcement but only positive that's coming from these people who have created a generation of college students who find that if anyone disagrees with them, that is a serious medical threat to them. So, um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, if with love sometimes, my mother, you know, I mean, I had a great mother, I had great parents. They were very, very loving parents. And my mother, you know, she ran a tight ship at home when I was a kid. and um, And I'm forever grateful. I'm forever grateful for that. So, again, everything she did she did with love, but, you know, I still remember, she put the fear of God in me oh, <laughs> when yeah. I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> so, not going to be able
1: to eat if they don't have one more question?
0: That's anyone going to sue us? I think, no, that's in America. <laughs>
1: okay. So, thank you all. Yeah,
0: last thing. Okay, thank you all very much. <laughs>